Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hello, I have some very exciting news for you, provided your definition of exciting news is sitting in a theatre and listening to me speak while you slowly get drunker and drunker. The first major sentimental garbage live show is happening this January 20th at the Bloomsbury Theatre in King's Cross, London. It is the biggest ever Sentimental Garbage Live event. I'm really excited. The theatre is huge. But having said that, they tell me the tickets are likely to sell out very quickly. So while general tickets are on sale from Friday the 9th of December, which is tomorrow if you're listening to this podcast on the day it comes out, you can access priority tickets right now if you go to sentimentalgarbage.substack.com and sign up. I am so excited for this show. The live events are always such a good time. And um, because it's like my first big event like this, uh, it's going to be very, very exciting because we may be planning a little after party for afterwards where we can all take up the pent up sentimental garbage energy and go dancing afterwards. Um, I don't have a link for that right now, but I will very soon. So keep your eyes peeled on the Instagram and on the email page. Look in the show notes for the relevant links or for more, go to fame.co.uk forward slash sentimental garbage. Otherwise, I hope to see you January 20th at the Bloomsbury Theatre. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the culture we love that society sometimes makes us feel ashamed of. My name is Caroline O'Donoghue and Argentina is good for two things, beef and Nazis. Joining me is the man who still hasn't recovered from his pencil accident, it's Sam Sedgman. I object. <laughs> Hello. Thank Hi. you so much for having me on. <laughs> thank you for coming on. And thank you for finally for finally coming on, actually, I should say, because we've been talking around this for a long time. Mm. And every time we do, you suggest something to do with Sandra Bullock. <laughs> and so it's just it's luck true. of the draw that we're finally on while you were sleeping. <laughs> Well, I could not be happier to talk about this deranged film that I love very dearly. It's so lovely. And I, I can't believe I just watched it for the first time. For the first night. time. How have first you escaped time. it for this long? I, I remember I have such a fuzzy memory of it a bit, playing on a very small TV in a spare room somewhere mm. kind of thing. And, and for some reason, I thought it was a thriller because... <laughs> <laughs> I oh, really... there's another version of this movie that's a thriller. Maybe, Maybe. like, but uh, the his um, family doesn't know. His family, yeah. I, I remember all the hospital scenes. I remembered her like really tearful at his bedside. <laughs> You're so right. But then, you, I, so when I turned it on last night, I, when I heard "This Will Be I Never Last," I was like, "Oh, it's this." Yeah, it's a very different mood. You could recut this movie yeah. to be a thriller, like that Mary Poppins trailer where mm-hmm. they recut it to be like she's in their house and yeah. the kids aren't safe. Yeah, and, <laughs> the and, kids and, aren't safe. And I did read um, like a a recent review, like a a, a reassessment of this movie by Mm. a journalist who was not impressed by it and said it's like an ode to gaslighting and like... um, That is the most 2017 fucking shit I've ever heard. (laughs) 
it's like you, you need to not take this movie that seriously, but take yeah. it at the level that it's given you. But yeah, there's some there is some weird things that only work as a friendly, uplifting movie in the nineties about yeah. this, uh, and I think that's why I love it. It's very of its time, and I think that was why my I was confused about it because I think it has now become such a meme because of all of the kind of the 90s rom-coms, some of which are classic, some of which are B-tier, but still firmly loved, yes. you know? Um, this is always like the joke one in a way. Even yeah. though people love it and they find it cosy and stuff, they're like, what an insane premise. <laughs> like, it is, it, that's the thing, it is insane. But as I rewatched it, it's insane in a way that I find immune to criticism. Yeah. <laughs> Like, you know, you got, yeah. someone could be there pointing out how ridiculous this whole thing is. And, and like, you can throw a rock at it and it bounces right off. Yeah. You don't care. You don't care. And that's because there's so much incredible, often ignored, like, craft to this movie. And yes. the way it was made, the performances, Sandra, who we'll get into, mm. absolutely nuclear powered charisma at the heart of this movie. But everyone in this movie, the way it's made, the, yeah. the story, the function of it, you just, it works in a way that movies don't work like this anymore. Yeah. We've talked about it several times, but like mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's a masterpiece of its own on its own terms, I would say. <laughs> no, I, I really do agree. And I, I have a couple of like disagreements with it, mostly to do with the score. Oh sure. <laughs> more yeah. more in that I think that and I'm just get out of the way top top where it's, it's really my only criticism of the entire movie in that like it's so it feels like in post they were like, We really have to make people know that this isn't creepy. Yes. And by and we're gonna put in so much strings and, and things to tell you how to feel. Yep. That honestly the dialogue is perfect, but if there was no dialogue, you'd know exactly what was happening based on just now it's the meaningful music and no, it's the whatever. You know, it's like Yeah, they kind of maybe bottled it at the last minute. Yeah, it's like they kind of lost the faith in their own concept and that's why the score bummed me out. But it makes you wonder if they did rescore it to lean into the creep. Yeah. How, like whether that would, whether the secret is the score, I don't know. But the score like does what it needs to do. Yeah. You know, like you're, you're never in doubt about how you're supposed to feel. Exactly. And is that a problem in a rom-com? You know, I don't know that it is. Yeah, like, no, it's not. And I think... But it's very in your face. You're completely right. Yeah, it is. It's very, very, you know, high in the mix, I guess. And uh, I get, I mean, the thing about rom-coms is the same thing with any kind of great genre movie whether it's horror or spies or whatever mm. which is that the the mad concepts and the overblownness of it all is there to present you a universal truth that can only be really investigated through an overblown metaphor and i think the the sort of truth underneath the craziness of the movie is how crushing it is to be alone. Oh, <laughs> like, yes. And I think that's why this movie sustains for me as something yeah. that I want to go back to again and again is because you've got all the the the, the fluff and the structure and that they fall in love mm. and that's very sweet and all the jumpers, which we'll, I'm sure, oh, get into jumping. in great detail. The jumpers, the jumper mm. content of this movie is spectacular. Um, but yeah, there's a very dark well of sadness at the heart of this movie yeah. that you don't often see no. in a romantic comedy. And... It's played so well and it really, it, that's kind of where all of the feelings come from, I think, in this movie. Like the, all the stuff with the, the dead dad and the... Yeah. Oh, I mean, we'll get into her wearing her dead dad's coat for the whole movie, I think. Her dad's, her dad's entire wardrobe by the looks of it. The whole wardrobe, yeah. you're quite right. But yeah, there's a real sadness at the heart of this movie that, that, the, that it speaks to. And it's the fact that it's set at Christmas time and it's about mm-hmm. family and needing to have people around you. It's, it's very... 
Yeah, it's really evocative and very strong in a, in a way that I think a lot of other rom-coms aren't. And it would be easy to write a version of this that is creepy or is frivolous. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the fact that it takes itself seriously enough and the mm-hmm. characters seriously enough, even in the middle of this absurd premise, yeah. makes you feel things even when you know it's silly and ridiculous. And I think that's part of why it sticks around. Yeah, yeah, I think I think when, when something has such a crazy concept... yeah the 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 sort of emotional truth that underlines and underpins it's like they need to I remember we talked about this during the Sex and the City series where when the real life stakes spike in Sex and the City the the crazy showbiz yeah. life it's like you know Samantha doesn't have cancer she has cancer in a premiere you know yeah, yeah. and and that makes it pleasurable and it makes life feel bearable and that's what these kind of movies are about it's about making life feel bearable yeah and um yeah, and and there's there's something there's yeah in in you've got mail. It's like yes, it's the story of these like two unlikely business owners <laughs> who meet on AOL kind of thing. But underneath that is a story about a woman who misses her mother and is clinging on to her mother's life just to, to keep her alive, and then is free of it. You know, absolutely. And I think a lot of there are some romantic comedies which we look back on and we think of now. I think as great movies like yeah. uh, pinnacles of culture mm-hmm. and like when Harry Met Sally I think is like the ultimate romantic comedy certainly of the yeah. 90s it's definitely the 90s isn't it it's not yeah. late 80s is it it's 90s, it's 90s yeah it's 90s, firmly great. 90s yeah um, While He Was Leaping is not a great movie in like the canon yeah. of great movies but it is a spectacular example of craft in this genre yeah. and I think it, it doesn't like try to elevate itself into that like upper echelon of like mm-hmm. when Harry Met Sally like you know got nominated for Oscars like this movie yeah. You could argue that Sandra Bullock deserves an Oscar for this performance because it's one of her it's one of her greatest performances, I think, and the kind that is so often ignored. But I, she made this movie coming off the back of Speed, mm-hmm. which is her breakthrough, mm-hmm. and I think one of the greatest movies of all time. <laughs> it was her her public transport era. Her pub. She was very much like the icon of mass transit with Sandy in the nineties. It's it's a, it's a real thing. Um, but I think this is a really interesting movie to compare to Speed because they're both like excellent examples of genre but people look back at speed now as a truly great movie as like an example of action cinema for the ages and no one really looks back at while you were sleeping and thinks it was all that good <laughs> like culturally because boys like speed <laughs> that's because boys like speed it's very true but like you people look at speed and be like oh but the practical effects like the yeah. scoring um you know the 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 way the script pops like mm. uh the chemistry that they have the premise the execution man that's a great movie and while he was sleeping, like, is that the one where she, like, you know, pretends to be married to this guy in a coma and, like, it's at Christmas? What the hell is that? <laughs> but everything that Speed does in the service of its genre, yeah. while he was sleeping, does as well, just as effectively. And they are both carried by Sandra Bullock being just incredible on screen and making you like her in spite of whatever ridiculous situation that she's put in. Yeah, yeah. And, like, there's something... I, I read a, a, a contemporaneous review of... of... Not just the movie, but of Sandra Bullock. I think it was written in the mid-90s, maybe after Speed, after this, and she was really soaring. And uh, someone sort of referred to her as Jimmy Stewart in in a woman's body. Okay. Um, Just because she's like someone who has a heightened ordinariness that makes us believe that ordinary people like us could be... Um, could be amazing when called upon to do amazing things. Heightened ordinariness is... 
a questionable compliment, but yeah. I think it is. I think it is correct. Yeah. Because yeah, like I, I think of the things that I like about her performances, and as you've alluded to, I am an incredibly huge Sandra Bullock fan, but <laughs> but not in the way that I know that you talk about on this show. People being born under a diva star, mm-hmm. and like Sandra Bullock's not my diva star. Like she's not my share or my Mariah Carey or whatever. But like I just think she's really great in a way that we perhaps don't credit her for, and that's maybe because. The center central thing of a lot of her great performances are she's just an ordinary gal, mm-hmm. you know. They're not really high crazy. She's not doing a Sophie's Choice movie. She's mm-hmm. not. She's not doing these big kind of Oscar plays. She's not doing these big heightened performances. Mm-hmm. Um, she is being an ordinary person in ordinary places. And the thing that she does that I think makes her really great. I often think about these little moments. That like it's just when she's driving a bus in speed and you really believe that she's driving that bus and she's she's got to turn the wheel to get make it around that corner and she's and she's just looking at bill pullman and being in love in a token booth on the chicago subway yeah and she's just like brushing her chin with her fingers always touching her mouth always touching her mouth like yeah. meryl meryl does that is that the same but heightened ordinariness you're quite right that's yeah. really what 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 brings her and her performances to life, I think. And similar to Jimmy Stewart, if you met somebody who was acting like Jimmy Stewart in real life, you'd be like, this is this guy. This is a lot. And with her, it's like, she's a fucking knockout. She's the most stunning mm. woman. And now that I look at you across from you, it looks like she could be your mom. Stop that. <laughs> she like, Don't add like more complicated reasons why I might like this movie. <laughs> she, she could be. Everyone, I'm sure, is on their phone right now googling Sam and finding that he is shockingly handsome. And, and the And the one true child of Sandra Bullock. <laughs> if I turn out to like Sandra Bullock just because she looks a bit like me, that's really sad. <laughs> but I guess we've all learned a lesson here today. Can I also ask a weird question? Uh-huh. Is the title of this episode, as it appears on the podcast feed, going to be While You Were Sleeping With Sam Sedgman? <laughs> oh my God, that just occurred to me. Oh, this occurred, is so good. It occurred to me on the way in, and it sounds a little bit like a text you might get from a clinic. <laughs> But while you were sleeping with Sam Sedgman, <laughs> we took a swab. Okay. We took a swab after while you were sleeping with Sam Sedgman, and the results are problematic. We, we swabbed your tears <laughs> to see what emotions you were feeling. Um, and one of them was great sadness. Oh, wow. No, okay. Should I do a plot summary? Please do, because we have gone off the rails off here. Off the rails while you were sleeping with Sam Sedgman. <laughs> anyway, uh, God. Um, right, so. Lucy is a Chicago subway employee who is desperately alone and spends her days fixated on Peter, a businessman who takes the train between 8 and 8.15 every morning. When Peter is pushed off the tracks and into a coma, Lucy is mistaken by his large and charming family for his fiancée. While his older brother Jack is suspicious of her, Lucy gets in deep with the O'Callaghan family and finally finds a family of her own. Mm. A sweaty premise. Oh my God. (laughs) A very sweaty premise. But I would say one that does not feel sweaty. <laughs> one that's delivered with great ease. Explain to me a sweaty premise. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I feel like we all know what this means. Uh, a, a movie, story, or something that's, that has to really work up a sweat to get you, mm-hmm. to, to get you in gear for where this story is going to go. Yeah. There's a lot of setup involved. There's a lot of characters, a lot of moving parts, a lot of goodwill. Uh-huh. You've really got to, you know, like someone telling you a story down at the pub, but like having to like pull you by the sleeve, being like, no, no, listen, like, listen, okay. <laughs> Sure, there are like eight characters you need to know about, and we were like uh, at the Grand Canyon, and it was mm-hmm. raining, okay, but it was also a Thursday. Like, you know, go, go, go. Yeah. But once you get there, it may well be a great story. Sweaty premise. But the thing... Because it's very interesting to me, because the first time I ever heard the phrase sweaty premise, I was telling you a story in a pub. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'd forgotten that. And uh, and uh, I was telling you the, the the plot of my next novel, and you went, "Well, that sounds like it could be a very sweaty premise, but good luck." <laughs> I'm like, really excited to read your novel. I just want to say that. Okay, I'm sure. <laughs> high concept is another way of putting this. High, but that's that's my question. Actually, the uh, I think it, it's an interesting phrase if you're somebody who is interested in story structure. Mm. Because what is the difference between a sweaty premise and high concept? So I think high concept kind of implies like parallel universe or um, mm-hmm. a big leap of imagination, like a central yeah. premise mm-hmm. that's big. Whereas a sweaty premise is maybe like complicated or muddy or like there's a lot of moving parts to it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So similar, but I think quite different. In the way that like while you were sleeping, there's the whole, it, I guess it is high concept, but also it, it's kind of the opening 10 minutes where you get to the premise, which is, okay, it's Christmas mm-hmm. time and she's alone and she works at the toll booth on the subway and she's in love with this guy and her dad's mm-hmm. dead and then she saves his life and they get to the hospital and she pretends to be his fiancé and the nurse is and then she meets the family and then it's Christmas. <laughs> there's, like, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> like, um, But I think the reason I said sweaty premise is because I don't think this movie makes it feel sweaty at all. It glides into this mm-hmm. ridiculous scenario with great ease and um, you never feel like you're kind of scraping on the edges of of, of the tracks here. Like this yeah. is a very well-oiled storytelling machine that gets you into that hospital room with the family and you're like, oh, they think that she's mm. his fiance, And that's and, when the movie and starts. And the, the craft of those turns, I mm. find... It's like watching great figure skating or something. Yes. You're like, yes, they landed the jump. <laughs> um, like even to the point where, you know, she is established early on as like somebody who grew up just with their dad and now their dad is dead. And that world was very filled with dreams and dreaming. Mm. And it's interesting because it has this prologue that's very like, yeah, it's like a sort of a parody on like, isn't it weird how we're doing a flashback at the beginning of the yeah. movie? It's but... so orange. What <laughs> the hell? Yeah. 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 Um, and it's kind of, it, I imagine when I, when I was watching again, cause I watched it for the first time last night, but then, uh, between podcasts this afternoon, I read the entire script and had real appreciation for the formalism of that, of mm. like somebody who's established early on as being very alone and very lives in a dream world. Yeah. And you also, know? I think the thing that makes the sadness really hit for me, like mm-hmm. the deep well of sadness and all the stuff to do with loneliness and, and, her, and her parents being dead, is because whenever she talks about it, she's telling a joke about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is clearly her coping mechanism for that. Um, you know, when we get the prologue at the beginning, she's making jokes about her dad and Milwaukee and like yeah, yeah. all the adventures that go on. When she has that really kind of moving conversation with Saul, uh, the next door neighbor, the godfather, on the steps outside the house just before she goes in for Christmas, um, she's like, Well, we had to move to Chicago because he was sick and we had to go to a research hospital. Mm. And then he decided he'd have enough research and then he died. Yeah. And. You, you can and tell that's how people are. Yeah, they build armor for themselves yeah. out of humor, and it is heartbreaking because she does it with such a smile, and she's doing it to be winning, and also to kind of, sort of like apologize for her own grief. Yeah, like in the way that she's like, I'm yeah. telling you a sad story, but I don't want to bum you out. I know that, and that is, it's so real. It's like I'm, yeah. I'm, and we've all had a situation like that. We all have something in our lives that's a bit sad, and we've had all had a conversation where it's like, oh, um, you don't know this, but he actually died, and I don't want you to feel bad about it because you were in to know. Yeah. And like, and so here's a little joke to, to make you feel better. So human, mm. yeah. And it would be easy for this movie to be like treacly and have her crying in all of those moments. Mm. 
But I think, and she does cry a couple of times in this movie, but she's smiling when she cries. Yeah. Um, she cries at the wedding, the aborted wedding, which <laughs> we'll talk about. It always makes me cry. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, like, there are some ridiculous lines in it that mm. are just absolute clangers that I think this is the dumbest line I've ever heard in my life. And then the next line will come along and I'll be in tears. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can really see that because the comedy is so good. Yeah, as and, well. and they don't all hit, but like they mostly yeah. hit. It's, they mostly hit. They mostly hit. So we've already established this is a great movie in terms of craft and yes. character and Sandy's performance and everything. Um, but this is sentimental garbage. Um, and we can talk about craft all the live long day, but I'd love to know what this sort of means to Sam Sedgman. Oh, the sentimental part of sentimental yes. garbage. Okay. Um, yeah, because I have been thinking about this because... You know, we have been talking for a while about me coming on and doing something. And I was like, what do I want to talk about? And I love Sandra Bullock. Um, I mean, so this movie entered my life at Christmas time, as it does, you know, oh. for many people. Um, and it's a movie my mother loves. Um, and I guess, yeah, you can chart my Sandra Bullock interest from speed when I was 13. Because mm-hmm. like, like a lot of teenage kids, you know, I love that movie where the bus explodes. Um, <laughs> and then that like sells me on Sandy. And then um, my mum is watching this rom-com every Christmas called While You Were Sleeping. Mm. And it has trains in it. And for listeners who don't know, I'm a huge yes. train person. Yeah, um, <laughs> and please uh, briefly explain your train credentials. Sure. I've written, uh, I'm a children's author um, and I've written uh, a series of books called Adventures on Trains with my very good friend M.G. Leonard. They are sort of adventure mystery stories for 8 to 12 year olds set on railway journeys all over the world. And I'm... Mad about trains and mass transit generally. Very much no sweaty premises, just a guy who loves trains. Yeah. And has made that into a dazzling career. <laughs> I mean, are the, yeah, they turn up on railway journeys around the world and there's a murder or there's a jewel thief. That's and great. why do we care why that's happening? It's here. Let's go. <laughs> um, but no, while he was sleeping, obviously has trains in it. Very iconic train, mm-hmm. the Chicago L. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most iconic pieces of mass transit, I'd say, in the world. Okay, go on. Oh, have you been to Chicago? No. Go to Chicago. I've never been to that part of America at all. I've only been to the South. Mm. Well, Chicago, I went to Chicago to take a train because uh, I, I went uh, from Chicago. You to go South. many places to take trains. I really do. It's go- adorable. Traveling places to travel is is a thing that I do because uh-huh. I've, I've written these books. And so I wanted to take uh, uh, the California Zephyr, which is a train that goes from Chicago to San Francisco and takes three days and two nights and is one of the most beautiful railway journeys in the world goes through the Rocky Mountains and you follow the Colorado River. There's like desert and snow and bears. It's like uh, an incredible journey. And that's where the the second book in our kids' book series was set. So I wanted to do it for for research and I went for my birthday. Um, And Chicago is a really interesting city. It's the third largest city in America. And you cannot escape the L there. It's the elevated train that just kind of clatters all the way through the the middle of the city. And the the centre of like downtown Chicago is defined by the loop. Um, which is the loop of track of the L that kind of encircles some city blocks at the centre of downtown. And um, Chicago is one of those cities that has a really strong sense of identity Mm. and, like, one of the most pronounced senses of it. Like, New York has it as well, but Chicago... People from Chicago love to tell you they're from Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, like, it has a great flag. Um, And, yeah, it's a very famously, like, iconic city flag with, like, four red stars and blue and white stripes. It's a very, like, bold piece of... um, graphic design um but also i feel like in the 90s when this movie came out 
Chicago was like really everywhere in the culture. Yes, yeah, John Hughes and yeah, like there was a and lots of movies. Oprah being... was in Chicago. Yeah. Um, Chicago Bulls, obviously, like uh, yes. Michael Jordan. Um, uh, like every David E. Kelly television drama was set in Chicago. Like, yeah, a lot of rappers coming out of there. Yeah, as well. yeah, it was yeah. like a huge. And the way that I feel like it's not so much true anymore, and I'm not quite sure like why the bear. The bear. the bear, oh yeah, the bear is bringing it back for Chicago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, so Chicago, uh, really strong sense of itself, and, and the L is like such a huge, like iconographic mm-hmm. part of Chicago's identity in a way that's like kind of like the tube is for London, but like what if the tube is like on the street and you could see it all the time? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not so okay. So it's not a tram. No, it's just like a it's just like a metro system on stilts. <laughs> God, I hadn't thought of how weird that is, and not like the DLR. No. Because it's going, plowing right through the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, it does that. That is mad. It does it in some parts of New York as well, but like, uh, not all of it and not in the center. Yeah, it's just like, and it's called the L because it's the elevated train. And it was like kooky and weird when it got built. And now it's perfectly normal. Yeah, it feels very turn of the century. Yeah, exactly. And um, like, the one of the great things that kind of we've lost from city identity is the thing that Sandra Bullock's job is in this film is to like mm. take the subway token yes. you would buy like these tokens in advance like instead of tickets and you would be able to keep them in like your mm. wallet your purse whatever and and give them to the attendant and kind of go through the barriers and i don't think they i know they they got rid of them in new york a few years ago but i don't think they have them in chicago anymore either mm. um, deliciously analog yeah yeah and just ugh, a way that like jobs that don't exist anymore that are really iconic yeah and very of their time yeah. um but you asked me my feelings yes <laughs> and i talked to you about subway tokens no but, I, but i'm so ex- i loved hearing about that. Oh, but that, i feel like that's one of the reasons that <laughs> yeah. rom-coms are often so great right is because they're of the the, the business of everyday life like that's what yeah. really brings them to life and that's i think one of the reasons this is this one pops out is because it's about like a very specific setting like yeah. on the on the rails in the in the office of the and the, the token booth rather yeah you're so right it's also what i miss about dating in that like you mm. because i think in in the way of uh, women being people pleasing and very porous it's like just a, going out with a guy for like five times and he's really <laughs> into one thing and i get to learn a bit about it like what give me examples Oh, like, you know, my, my ex-boyfriend was, like, a really big gamer and he worked in the industry. And then I developed an adult love of gaming through it and that stayed with yeah. me my whole life. And I haven't spoken to him in 12 years. <laughs> like, so, yeah, that's interesting. Though. And that is that is like the geography of, like, dating someone and, like, the, yeah. the early part of a relationship and what you see in a rom-com. Yeah. And I know, like, I'm a huge Nora Ephron fan as well. And like one of the reasons I really love her scripts is the simplicity and it, like you have mm-hmm. the conversation and they're always doing a thing mm. they're always like in a place they're always like at the batting cages or like yeah. buying a book or like and the the setting does so much for it mm. um and that's not quite as on show in while you were sleeping but like the reason it's interesting is because of the specificity of hospital and yeah. the token booth at the l and also it made me think a lot about the tradition of christmas films and mm. About so much of Christmas movies, when you're trying to make it for kind of a broadly non-Christian audience, yeah, or, or not, I mean, well, obviously with all American movies, there's an implicit Christianity yeah. in everything. <laughs> but you, but you're you're making a Christmas movie that that isn't about God, and it's not for children. Yes. And so, yes. what is it? Mm. And I think you know, so much of it is about opulence versus poverty, right? Yeah. And so, you like, like like A Christmas Carol, for example, which yeah. is, you know, the most classic example of it. Or um, It's a Wonderful Life, where you have, like, again, um, Jimmy Stewart's very simple, pared-back life versus, you know, the opulence of, like, Pottersville or whatever. Yeah. But, um, you know, this is... A, 
this is like a a world where Sandy's world is like bare and pared back, yeah. and and we really have a sense of how little money she has, and everything's grim and grey. And then you walk into the O'Callaghan's house for the first time. And it's like, it's the McAllister's house in Home Alone. Everything's busy. The wallpaper yeah. is busy. Every shelf is covered in something. Everyone yeah. is wearing like busy, like textured clothing. And it's loud. Right. And it's, the lights are bright. And and they met her yesterday, but they have gifts for her. Because they're oh. probably that kind of family that has gifts just oh. stowed, you know? They, my heart, when the camera pans up oh, from Sandra Bullock, like hugging the present. Like looking at everyone around her with like big saucer eyes and the camera pans up to the mantelpiece where they have hung a makeshift stocking and written Lucy on it for her because they didn't want her to feel left out. And it's, oh my God. It's so gorgeous. So when you write a movie about... That's my favourite part of the whole movie was that. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. So like you say, you know, it's about Christmas, but it's not about Christmas. It's about, so whenever ever a movie is about Christmas, it kind of takes something I think and focuses on a non-God part of Christmas. Yeah. And this is very much focusing on family. Mm. And there's a line that she has on the stoop where she's talking to Saul and she says like, it's really important to have family this time of year. She yeah. says someone without family to someone who does. And yeah. that's a heartbreaking obs- observation as well. Because yeah. her dad died, I think, she says last year. So this uh-huh. is like the second Christmas that she's oh, been it, without oh, that, her dad, okay, I think. Okay. So, so yeah, it's quite it's surprisingly recent. I'm not quite sure how old she's supposed to be. I think she, she was around 30 maybe when she made this film. Mm. But I think the character must be like early 20s or mid 20s. She said yeah. she had to quit school or something. And I love being being thirty and being your second big movie. Oh it's my like, god! Yeah, yeah. She's. Know, I'm so tired of the movie stars being younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> it's her. Just a little word on her longevity as well, because like, yeah, she started making movies in the eighties. Yeah. She she pops in. She starts opposite Sylvester Stallone in Demolition Man, but like her first kind of breakout is Speed. She was in Demolition Man. Oh yeah, she's Lenina Huxley. The like I love sexy, that movie. futuristic sidekick. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Wow. And uh, but while he was sleeping is her first lead role, I think. Lead role in a major movie. Yes. And then she's basically lead in everything After until the, the present day. And she continues to be. I think last year she was still the highest paid actress in Hollywood because she made The Lost City for like twenty million dollars and she also pops up in Bullet Train. So she's like yeah. she's sustained a career as a lead movie star for thirty years, which is insane to me. Um, yeah. And quite rare. Yeah. And I think the reason it's insane is it, it is also she has somehow like not penetrated the cultural, like the pop culture consciousness in the way that like mm. we're all obsessed with Jennifer Aniston. Yes. Or like she's not like a tabloid person like that. Her personal life is fundamentally uninteresting to the culture for the most yeah, part. Yeah, or like even Nicole Kipman, who's like her contemporary, yeah. but has, there's like memes with Nicole Kipman of her in that cinema and mm-hmm. like her and Tom Cruise and like there's a thing, mm. you know. I, I compare it to Kirsten Dunst as well. Somebody ah. who we all love by virtue of them just building up a great body of work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like... we like her because she's been around for a while. And also, <laughs> yeah. and like, she's really good at smiling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, I have no ill will to her. And also she's really good at what she does. But yeah, she's not like, you know, and I say this as like someone who's a huge fan, but like I don't think you get like stands for Sandra Bullock in the way that you get like big stands for Nicole Kidman, especially like Oscar nerds and movie buffs. Like, yes, people like have really strong feelings about Julianne Moore in a way that they do not have any feelings about Sandra Bullock. That's our really strong feelings about like, Tony Collette <laughs> oh or my like God. Alison Janney. Yeah, uh, you know Laura. Done. Yeah. Yes. Like. <laughs> yes. There. That's so interesting because, like, if we're talking about, the, I mean, I think, 
you and I are talking about a very specific kind of person that I know you and I both know, like that sort of person who's like, um, they're really into best supporting actresses. Like, oh they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just like super into Laura Dern, super yeah. into um, yeah, your your Tony Collettes or whatever. And then there's people who are into movie stars who are yes. into like Jennifer Lawrence and Nicole Kidman. Yeah, and like Sandy's kind of in the middle. Yeah, like she's. <laughs> She'll headline a movie and people want to go see her in a movie. And if she's in a movie, I'm seeing it. But I don't really need to read gossip magazines about her. Yeah. And I don't really, I mean, I I don't kind of feel like I need to root for her like people root for Annette Bening to win a Best Supporting Actor nomination for something. Like, yeah, you're right. She kind of straddles weirdly both of those worlds. Nor am I sitting around thinking about understanding her the way I think about Julia Roberts so frequently. Yeah. I like, I like burn calories thinking about Jennifer, (laughs) like Julia Roberts' motive for her life. I I rarely think about Sandra Bullock, but when she turns up in my head, um, it's always a nice surprise. (laughs) There she is. There she is, being great. And yeah, just being ruthlessly charismatic in everything she does and making you really care about her character, whatever a ridiculous thing that she's doing and it's also if we think about like you know this and also Miss Congeniality oh and Two Weeks Notice yes. it's always it's always like a person who's like coming in sort of like I don't I don't know and then uh, hang on I'm incredibly charming and now everyone loves me and, yes. and it's like it starts kind of staccato and then it relaxes into itself and we're like that's me when I'm awkward and then I become <laughs> delightful <laughs> exactly that exactly that um, and also she's not often sexy a thing I yeah. think is very important to this movie. Mm-hmm. She's obviously an incredibly beautiful woman, mm-hmm. um, but rarely like required to be like a sexual object or like mm. like a in the way that like a lot of actresses have to do in movies and mm. or to make a career. Um, she's uh, I remember seeing her on I think Graham Norton show once like talking about how she only does nudity when it's funny. Yes, um, yes. Like famously, the proposal, like where the like her and Ron Reynolds like run in and like their naked bodies like slap into each other when they're out of the shower and it's just like hilarious it's a hilarious nude scene yeah. she's not doing a lot of like erotic sex scenes um, I love that and this movie you know while he was sleeping like there's no makeover scene there's no, no like she takes her glasses off and suddenly Bill Pullman falls in love with her she wears jumpers at the beginning she wears jumpers at the end it's Christmas it's cold and we love her for it no yeah. one like has a big makeover um, we like her because she's kind and nice and yeah. she just doesn't want to hurt anyone and we feel sorry for her and we want good things for her. Like, you know, the man doesn't go, uh-huh, like when she takes off the coat yeah. and underneath is like a little You're black right. dress. There's no, there's none of that. There's and none of that at been, all. It would have been so easy, especially her going to like their dinner or whatever for her to be like, oh yeah, here's my little dress or whatever. Yeah, she dresses up fancy and that's when Bill Pullman notices her. No, yeah. Bill Pullman like falls in love with her when they move a sofa together, yeah, and and like she makes a stain on on his brother's carpet by knocking yeah. over that vase or whatever. Like yeah, and they have that like they they fall in love in a way that like you believe actual people like each other, not like yeah. looking at someone going the doy, like <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, in a way that is feels real and interesting, and actually completely different to. Because the movie begins with, there's a line about, like, do you believe in love at first sight or something? Mm-hmm. And the idea that she's in love with Peter um, yeah. Gallagher, whatever. Um, Peter Callahan. The actor is Peter Gallagher. The character is Peter Callahan. Yeah, which, which Peter is... Gallagher is very good humoured about. He's yeah. like, yeah, I was playing a lot of dickheads in movies. <laughs> and I guess, I mean, they called him Peter Callahan, so. <laughs> he plays a dickhead so well, though. He's, he's just kind of out of face. Yeah. But and so, like, the movie sets up that she's fallen in love with this guy at yeah. first sight. And then slowly reveals that he is yuppie scum. <laughs> 
my favorite bit is when of him like you slowly reveal this throughout the movie like yeah. when you hear his voicemail yeah and when you first get ashley bartlett bacon leaving <laughs> leaving uh, a voice note saying what the hey i will marry you his voicemail is like this is callahan leave a message ciao Oh, he sucks. And he has like a picture of himself holding a tennis racket in his wallet. Oh my God, (laughs) yes. It's so, it's so like subtly introduced that like she should not be falling for this guy. But then you meet him. I kind of, I could have done with more of that. I love that. I loved when Saul is like, you're a putz. You've always been a putz. No one (laughs) likes you. This is your best opportunity to be a decent person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is actually what sells it as like, because the, the the final sort of quarter is mad. Oh my god! Yeah, the proposal, the wedding, the other proposal, the other wedding. Yeah, it all happens so fast in a movie that takes place over two weeks. Like it's I... it's bana- bananas. Um, but yeah, the fact that like you don't feel bad for him. Um, yeah. But also he plays it very well, and that he's just like he's quite upset to be called a putz, but also he kind of knows that he is. And and he, I, I really admire his performance in it because it's mm. like, it's really believable of like, first of all, he's asleep for most of the movie. Yeah. And then he wakes up and it's like, you know, that thing of, okay, well, something extreme has happened to me. This yes. is like, gotta be a calling from something or somewhere and like, looking at my life before and now all my family love this beautiful girl I've never seen and like, yeah, yeah I'm gonna, this is, I'm gonna marry her. <laughs> yeah. My family loves you. I might as well love you. <laughs> A ridiculous no. line that you buy in the moment because buy- it's, it's performed very well. Another ridiculous line I really bought in the moment yeah. was when um, Sandra Bullock's one friend, Jerry, who's her manager. Oh my God. She has no friends. Her only friend is her boss. It's so sad. And her boss has no fucking clue what's going on the entire time. <laughs> the way it's, it, I just love it so much. The way she keeps like explaining the plot of the movie and he's like, huh? <laughs> like, yeah. They have like doctors we- for this kind of thing. <laughs> So, at one point he scr- Gavin like jumped out of his seat. One point he screams, "Well, your boyfriend is a vegetable." <laughs> it was like, can he say that? Yeah, I don't think you could say that now, but it's he said it at the time. It's it's it is bonkers. It's so sad that she doesn't have any friends. I know because like that's the thing. The rom com it it like yeah, so lives often and dies have, on the best friend. So often you have the best friend, and she, and then you have auxiliary friends like and you've got male or whatever yeah, yeah. or uh, Harry and Sally. Everything they all have best friends. Like, One thing that struck me as really weird watching it this time was um, Sandy's like alone and she she works in the token booth, but like mm-hmm. the woman who works behind her is like her, what's her name Celeste. Or, Celeste, I think. Yeah, yeah. Celeste. Um, and she goes to her New Year's Eve party and she's got hundreds of friends. <laughs> Yeah, so she's doing great. It's not like, unique to working on the. It's not like the bored, sad, lonely, you know, token booth girl. It's because she's she has an inner sadness. That's that's what it is. Yeah. But yeah, no best friend, which I think is a really interesting calculus for a yeah. rom com. Um, obviously, like the boss kind of fulfills that role, but that just reinforces how sad it is. Right, and it's it's just, <sighs> and it's also this thing that um, and it's so it's it's quite a pat joke, but when it's like strong with all these other little beads, it makes a very heartbreaking portrait, yeah. which is like, um. You know, oh, the hot dog guy never remembers her throat. Oh, the usual. What's that? The usual. And it's this kind of notion that it's not that she's unlikable or that she's, you know, repellent. It's just that there's a kind of a thinness in essence to her. Yes. Like she's kind of a wraith almost. Very much gets at, I've moved to the big city and I don't like it. Yeah. Which I think is a real... You know, so many of these kind of movies are about women moving to the big city and self-actualizing. Um, yeah. And this is... So uh, many of her movies are like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I... And that's, you know, like, that's... 
maybe one of the reasons it's like continued to resonate with me yeah. as an adult is like you know the idea that the city is a, a, a vibrant place but like the life that you build for yourself there can be very thin and it's very fragile yeah. and like you want human connection so much and it's not the romance plot in this is beautiful and lovely but like the conclusion of they get married without ever having kissed like or yeah. he proposes to her and they haven't kissed they haven't gone on a date it's yeah. madness it's not really about romance it's about yeah. human connection in a more general way right yes. she wants a family she wants to be seen she wants to be noticed she wants to be loved mm. like she needs to have an anchor point in her life and she lost that with her family and i think that's something that we all want like yeah. and in a city it's very hard and very difficult to find that um it's so interesting when you look at this movie under the context of I mean, I think the character is probably like 26, 27. Yeah, that makes sense. If you look at it under the guise of this is a person who's been in the city for two years and most of that time was spent caring for their parent. And now they are adrift and they have no connection and no home place to go to. Yeah. And it's like as somebody who moved to a city from somewhere else, it's like it really hits different when you see it in that lens. Yeah. And it's really interesting that I feel like so many movies are made that have like a similar shape of story or whatever but yeah. they don't get at something that feels real and true and the, the yeah. like the loneliness of the city is really feels like that to me and it looks so interesting Chicago in this mm. movie I think and I think because it's obviously Christmas that it's so dark a lot of the time yeah like which is again why I remember it as a thriller because it's yeah. so dark yeah yeah it's so like and it's it's dark and cozy a lot of the time yeah. but like you really like see people like curling away into their jumpers and their coats the snow really looks like snow even though it is not yeah. snow. Yeah. And I feel like it's a real s- problem with digital filmmaking is that mm. fake snow never looks like snow anymore. That's true. <laughs> it's, yeah, they've advanced the technology too far and it's unpleasant to look at now. Yeah, I remember watching The Holiday, the mm. Nice Myers movie, and like, God love that movie. The snow does not look like snow. It looks like little bits of shaved coconut. Like it, it. That's always what it looks like. Shaved think, coconut. You're dead that's, right. That's often what it is. I think, or certainly yeah. used to be. Really, but what? yeah, like you know, when like Cameron Diaz gets like a face full of snow in that movie, you're like, mm. that's not snow. That's Whereas this one, you know, they're they're out and about like falling over on the ice or whatever. You're yeah. like, that's not ice. That's like perspex covered in olive oil or whatever. But like <laughs> it, it looks like snow and slush because the movie has a sort of fuzzy, dark. This was filmed on celluloid. Look to it. Yeah, and that's why I think movies from the '90s always have that certain quality and feel to them, and that they feel they feel cozy and, and specific in that way. How does Bill Palmer hit for you? Interesting casting, Bill Pullman. Yeah. So I think he was delighted to get romantic lead rather than being... Yes. I don't know what he was doing before this. I know that he's like the the one you don't want Meg Ryan to end up with. In, in Sleepless in, in Seattle. Seattle. Yes. And he, he's a wonderful interview that I found. I can't remember if it's in that um, oral history we both read or a profile of him I read on the archive of the New York Times. Um, but he said that when he was on set of Sleepless in Seattle, he was like, sure, I'll, I'll play the clumsy guy. There's like a great... The honor in being a comic foil oh, and like yeah. whatever. And then he was like, you know, Nora's obviously this powerhouse and he's there with Meg Ryan and he's like, yeah, I can do this and whatever. And then that he just like sat in the cinema and just felt so embarrassed. Oh, And it's just like, just he felt really ashamed because like he's he's such a f- unfuckable character in it. In a and way like, that I, <laughs> so I remember watching this with my ex-boyfriend who's in Seattle mm-hmm. who has some allergies Oh. And he was like, the only reason you're not supposed to like Bill Pullman is because he has allergies. Yeah. There's no, he's a very nice guy. He just has some allergies. And that that's it. That movie really does like bad promo for people with allergies. <laughs> for the allergic community. So I feel really bad for Bill Pullman. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in this, he is like a very thin character. Mm. 
Um, like a lot of romantic leads are, I yeah. would say. He's good at carpentry. The Prince Eric effect, you know. <laughs> yeah, very true. But yeah, Bill Pullman has very good um, charisma in this. You don't meet him for like a good half hour into the movie because we're yeah. dealing with all of this coma nonsense. He comes so late. So late. Um, but you really like him because him and Sandy have like a really warm, great chemistry. And yeah. I think because they start off as his role is to actively interrogate her story and mm-hmm. he doesn't like her and he's suspicious of her. For which there is no stakes for him to feel that way. <laughs> no, like, like, no stakes for him to be as invested in, in defrauding her as he is. He sees her back as she's lying on a sofa and he's like, that's not Peter's fiance. Yeah, and I You're guess like, like... Why? How do you know? You've never met her. I guess what I, what I took from that was that he met the blonde girl. Ah, bacon, sure. Bacon, Ashley Bartlett Bacon. A, Ashley a woman Bar- named after breakfast meat. Who has like three scenes and nails them. Nails Knocks them. Knocks them out of the park. The way she kind of like awkwardly turns corners and almost falls off her heels and her purse goes flying. Oh my God. Like that actually had a great time. She was available for the oral history, wasn't she? Yeah. <laughs> she really was. And we love her for it. I find it so funny with oral history. It's like who really could tell, like is giving paragraphs of dialogue <laughs> and who's just like, yeah, we had a good time. Yeah, it was a great time. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com But no, Bill is really good. Um, can we talk about um, the jobs that romantic leads have in rom-coms? Yes, desperate. So he is like... Uh, oh, this is fucking stupid. Me and Gav were roaring up at this. Go on. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so in While You Were Sleeping, um, Bill Pullman works for his dad, uh, Mr. Callahan, and it, for Callahan and Son estate mm-hmm. salespeople. So they buy furniture off dead people and then sell them. Yeah. Um, and it was Callahan and Sons, but Peter left to become a yuppie scumbag lawyer. And uh, Bill Pullman... Which, just even that, I have so many questions oh, for. Oh, that's like... a whole thing. But like, again, that's a whole world that makes you really believe that it's real in the way that... Does it? Well, <laughs> I believe that there is emotional depth there that the movie yes. can mine rather than mm-hmm. like, he has an ordinary job or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, his passion is carpentry. His passion and like... We like him because we're supposed to like him when it's revealed that he can make a rocking chair that's really nice. Uh, you know, it's implied that he works with his hands. Yes. You know, very, yes. a very kind of sexy, appropriate... He drives a big van around. Very, like, blue-collar lead, romantic lead mm-hmm. profession, being a carpenter. Um, sometimes rom-coms give their lead, leading men, like, really stupid jobs. And I just think it's quite funny oh when they God. give them, like... I think there's one... Like, you know, in the Christmas, in like the classic hallmark, they're often like a Christmas tree farmer or something like that. Oh, sure. My favorite <laughs> one is um, the Reese Witherspoon one, Sweet Home Alabama, where oh, yes. he's a glass blower <laughs> and his whole deal is he gets in his hella plane or whatever. <laughs> it's like, you know, that's a, like the weird uh, plane that's a boat. And yeah. he like chases thunderstorms to find thunder that's been hit by uh, um, what? It, what? L- lightning what? that hits the sand and creates a kind of a glass and then he works with the glass and he's very good at it and he's had quite a fortune. This is like the movie Twister mixed with a rom-com. Like, yeah, it's uh, it's not great. I'd love to cover it one day. <laughs> one day. Yeah. An- another show. Mm-hmm. No, I wonder, I feel like maybe that's the secret though. Like glass blower carpenter if you could yeah. make like a cozy reality series about that profession it's the perfect yeah it's the perfect job to give your romantic lead in a show oh totally and it's the it's the Aiden Shaw effect as well isn't it oh you know? yeah yeah it's I never uh, liked Aiden but I get it yeah we all get it we all want to feel small but we'd, <laughs> we 
We do all want to feel small. Um, we uh, we like him because he's a carpenter, but like I don't really care that he's a carpenter. The carpenter stuff for me is like interesting because he has to have a difficult conversation with his dad about how he doesn't want his dad's business. Right, and it's, it's nice... all over in like a second. Yeah, and like it doesn't matter that it's over in a second to me, and like mm-hmm. there are no stakes, and it's very fine. But it's very much a parallel with he needs to own up about something to his dad. Sam oh, needs to own up about something yes. to his dad. And also, it's, you know, as a gay person, like, having a difficult conversation with your parents. <laughs> yeah. Very, very a mood. Um, <laughs> you know? And also, you know, not to get too deep too quick, like, uh, it's too quick. We talked about like an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, no, like, that's maybe one of the reasons this is particularly a resonant movie for me as a gay person is because, like, this is about having a secret you can't tell the family or with at Christmas. Oh, you know wow. what I mean? What if I tell them this thing and they all leave me and I'm alone? Oh my god. That's a very like I think that's why it's a resonant movie for queer people in particular. As well as the whole like going to the city and trying to find a family for yourself, right? Yeah. Like there's a lot of like calculus working under the surface here in in a way like why this hits different for certain people. Like if you're someone who's who's moved to the big city yeah. and, you're, and you're like working at a job you don't like, like it mm-hmm. hits on that level. If you're someone who has complicated feelings about your family, yeah. um there's that level. If you're someone who's suffered grief, like there's a lot of weird things about this movie that just seem to sort of hit different people in different ways and give them the feels. And I'm not oh, saying wow. that like, you know, I carry around any kind of huge trauma about being yeah. gay or anything. Like I came out and when I was 18, my family were great about it. Um but yeah, like it's it's a certain kind of emotional thing that, you know, you have with you. And I definitely feel like it resonated with me on some level in this bananas yeah. movie about a woman who works in mass transit. <laughs> it's so it's so interesting that you say that because I mean, there are many rom coms that sort of operate on a deception, right? And yeah. Like, but but I do understand why this one would hit different because the kind of again as we've said the loneliness feels so lonely mm. and the bareness feels so bare and then the, the the sort of nuclear family thing and everything having the everyone having their role and everyone having yeah. a place it's like it feels so good that like why would you say something and upset grandma yeah it's a very high concept movie sweaty premise <laughs> like it's a very complicated setup but the mm. stakes are very clear and very simple yeah in that like she's been welcomed into this family that's good but under false pretenses. That's, That's bad. bad. <laughs> and and literally, if you say the wrong thing around the dinner table at Christmas, your grandmother will have a heart attack and yeah. die. Something that like gay kids are often told, like well, don't, this is it. don't tell your Well, like, I'm fine well, with I'm it. I'm fine with it, but your yeah. grandmother will like her intestines will explode. Her intestines <laughs> will explode. that was so funny. Oh god, yeah. So yeah, yeah, it it's even though it's a ridiculous setup, like the yeah. the emotional stakes are very pure and very true. You know, like, uh, it's just, like, about this family and her and her relationship yeah. to them. And that's quite clean and simple, which is maybe why it doesn't continue to feel bananas as you go through. And there are all these different, like, um, you know, plot points that come along the way. Like, the other fiancé comes along, mm-hmm. the guy wakes up out of a coma. Again, very late. Very, but very late. But, yeah. like, lots of things happen to keep the plot moving forward, but they're yeah. not stupid things. They're, like, quite... Yeah ordinary things if you buy the initial premise whereas like a lot of movies would keep adding on business on top of other business there'd be a train crash or her twin sister would show up or like it's just whereas like the things that happen are simple family developments Mm. like um they have to deliver a sofa like the things that occur in the movie are quite small after this initial bigness of story and that's why i think they feel real and feel resonant it's it's so 
it's continuously fascinating to me the kind of the propaganda that big families yeah, uh, like elicit about themselves. Like big family is like saying big pharma. Like it's yeah, like, <laughs> big family. Yeah. Well, okay. So I want to talk about the family stone, but that's mm-hmm. not my job. My job is to talk about while he was sleeping. Yeah. Um, I think yeah, the big family in this movie is really interesting, right? Mm. Because Peter. The yuppie scum yeah. clearly doesn't really want to have anything to do with the family. No, because they all accept fairly quickly that he has a fiance. Yeah, that they don't know about. He lives and like visually, his apartment is very different. They both they all live in Chicago. So what's going on? They all live in Chicago, but they don't talk. Yeah. And like he's a lawyer, whatever he's busy, and you know we're supposed to think he's a bit stupid and idiot. But mm. like he doesn't want to spend time with a big family. No, and like that's a choice that one yeah. could make and it's not necessarily a bad choice but the like in the context of the family the idea that like they can't wait to like they really like Lucy in a yeah. way because they see her as like a conduit to getting him back in a way oh that's so good and like when he yeah, wakes you're up you're dead right he doesn't seem like that like oh god mum stop like yeah. it, he doesn't play it that way but also he does sort of act like a guy who's had a near death experience and wants to change his life yeah. in a way but he doesn't seem that close to his family yeah um he seems to live a very different life from them yeah. he got out of the family business early yeah and why is that a problem <laughs> you know it's but it yeah. but the the whole the idea at christmas time of like that obligation to come back together for the family mm. and the rest of the family see and it seems like a very lovely family and they're all very like warm and welcoming and that's great but i wonder would he have come back for christmas if he had not been in a coma well this is the interesting thing because he's taking the train on christmas day oh yes but where to yeah like maybe i mean maybe to see his family i don't know but i like, know he's carrying a briefcase he's carrying yeah is he working on christmas day Hell, somewhere. Yeah. It's fascinating. If, if they were to sort of Netflixify this and make it into sort of like eight... <laughs> unnecessary eight-part Eight, part, eight like, episodes, series. 40 minutes each. You'd get like... what Like episode five would be like a flashback to I know. Peter and like Jack as kids, like when Peter leaves the family like business when, or when Saul immigrates to America. Oh my God. <laughs> it would just unravel forever. Do not do that. Do if not you, do If you're that. listening, producers, don't However, do that. However, there... It, okay, it's an interesting premise. It's fun, and I wouldn't hate it. And I also wouldn't hate if we fleshed out why Peter was estranged from the family because it's yeah. very clear to me that he was. Yeah, there's something like he. You can tell from the furniture alone that he wants to live a very different kind of life. Yeah. Um, you're supposed to hate his stupid modern apartment. I yeah. don't mind it. I don't hate it at <laughs> I don't all. Mind it. Like his American psycho apartment. His American psycho apartment. I mean, I wouldn't have photographs of myself holding a tennis racket on the bar. <laughs> But you know, it seems it like is a kind cool of place. fun to imagine the kind of mashup of like maybe Peter is Patrick Bateman. Oh my god! <laughs> like, like, oh wow, it's the first girl we've met. Yeah, this is the first one who's lived. <laughs> we never like to go around to his apartment because of all those murders that seem to happen in the building. But yeah, him doing his push up with his eye mask on. Oh god, though. Now I'm thinking about it. Like, is it quite? How do we feel about like them as a engagement present, giving him a sofa that he will clearly hate? I know <laughs> he'll kill again. <laughs> <laughs> no, like like the, the the family have a very strong dynamic and they all yeah. seem very happy to be there. But not everyone can thrive in that dynamic. Yeah. And Peter doesn't shouldn't. He he can go and live his own life. What's interesting about the dynamic as well is that um it's very senior heavy. You know what I mean? Mm, yes. Okay. Like cuz I I feel, okay, so we get the mom and the dad. Yep. And then do we also get uh we also get the mother's mother, so the mother's gran. mother, yep. Do we get an, a grandfather and then we get Saul as well? I don't think we have a grandfather. We just have no, Saul. No, Saul is the grandfather. Saul is the grandfather. Uh, no, Saul's the godfather. Godfather. Who lives next door. Yes. Who is the dad's best friend. Best friend. I think. Right. And then you've got the three kids, the much younger daughter yeah. and then the two brothers. 
feels like there's a sibling missing, doesn't there? Yeah, well, maybe there is. That can be another. That can be like season two <laughs> when you write your Netflix drama. Stop shilling for screenwriting credits, Caroline. That's all this is for. <laughs> this is not that profitable an enterprise. <laughs> I need to get work from it. I do you think that's a small family? You come from a huge family, though. What are your family Christmases like? Does it, would that feel yeah, small to you? Definitely. You've got what three siblings? I've got three siblings, yeah, but they also have children, and it's like yeah, okay, it is a little bit home alone family sort of yeah, vibe okay. of like that. That actually the tenor of our Christmases and our family gatherings are taking on that vibe now of like I can totally see a child getting left behind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I guess, yeah, you don't, narratively, you don't want more characters in this because it's hard to keep track of them as it yeah. is. Yeah, especially if you look at the family stone, that poor older sister. Oh, <laughs> so many feelings about this. The characters are introduced in the family stone and they have nothing to do. Um, uh, but no, like the, there's clearly a desire to have like the big family mm-hmm. who all live in Chicago and come back for Christmas and that's really great. Um, it's just weird, I think, to um, front load it with older people when you're doing a big family movie rather than having yeah. a mix of... I don't know, but they're great. I mean, they're all great actors. But I, yeah, I guess you can't have... If some of them were married and had kids already, that like you need the, 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 the of-marriageable age children to be romantically available yeah. in order to make the plot function. That's true. Um, and But boy, do they love to get married. Can we talk about the speed with which they get married? Okay, let's go on to the... Yeah, let's hurtle towards the okay. the wedding. So Saul, the godfather, having yeah. discovered... The the whole movie knows that this woman, Lucy, is How like... How does he know? I feel like I blinked and missed o- that. He overhears at the hospital. So in, in the middle... God. In the middle of the night, she's been... She's been mistaken for this guy's fiance. She yeah. goes home, doesn't know what to do about it. So she gets up in the middle of the night and goes to the hospital to talk mm. to the guy in the coma about it because she has no friends and it's deathly sad. <laughs> and then she delivers this incredible monologue, which was Sandra Bullock's audition for yes. the role. Yes. Uh, and she made everyone cry. Um, she, like, I think they considered Julia Roberts, Demi Moore and someone and else. And Meg Ryan initially. And they were Well, they all... pitched it to Meg Ryan first <laughs> as being like, you want, it's going to be uh, this guy who falls in love with you and you're in a coma. And they were like, why would she want that? She's She'd in be, a coma. She's in a coma. She's asleep and also creepy. Yeah, that's right. When it was a guy and a girl and it was called Coma Guy, the early draft of this script. <laughs> yeah. It's much better as it is. But no, they, uh, they rejected a lot of people because they described them as too pretty. I which, know. what a weird... Weird dig. Yeah. I mean, like... Whatever. But anyway, Sandra got it with an audition, which is great. And that scene where she tells the comatose guy everything, the yeah. godfather is standing outside the door and hears everything and decides not to do anything about it because <laughs> he, for whatever reason, God, he does so much heavy lifting plot-wise. Yeah. He doesn't tell anyone because he thinks it's good for the family to feel like they have Peter back in their lives through her questionable... Again, I feel like that whole storyline needs another nod, that thing of like Peter's back kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Do they ever explicitly say it or is it just inferred and therefore is it better writing because it's inferred? I think it's better writing because it's inferred. Okay. And because this movie is a crisp 100 minutes. <laughs> And we like that. Um, but then he, when Peter wakes up, Saul tells him, um, she, he's trying to tell him, there's this woman, everyone thinks that she's your fiancé and she's not. Yeah. Instead he goes, she's your guardian angel. She's an and angel. And you, my friend, are a putz and you need to sort your life out. And the way you can sort your life out is by marrying Sandra Bullock. There. <laughs> and he's like, you're all right. <laughs> and That's then, so what old people think though. Yeah, a like, good marriage will sort this out. Yeah, exactly. Well, again, because like, what? How do we fix your life by bringing you into the family? Like, yeah, and yeah. like, you have been lost, my child, and you will mm-hmm. be brought back into the family with this nice girl that we've picked out for you. Um, and they then decide to get married the next day. 
At the hospital. At the hospital. At the hospital. Which I guess, like, near-death experience, whatever, you can forgive that to a degree. And it's cute when she turns up and, like, hangs her coat on the guy's IV bag or whatever. (laughs) And has, like, the saddest, weirdest wedding scene in a movie. Yeah. Um, I object. (laughs) I object, like, immediately. And then everyone else objects. And then the fiancé walks in. Yeah. um, And that's the big climax. And no one's mad at her, which I find really interesting. She gives this heartwarming speech about how she's betrayed all of them. And then they're mad at the sons. I think they they say, like, Peter, how could you do this to us? And you're like, he's been in a coma. He's done Why are you always mad at Peter? No wonder he wanted to get away from you a lot. Anyway, but it's... it's, she, She says... Like, she has her, like, she says, I'm very sorry, in a way that, yeah, like, only her, Sandy can. Her voice cracks, like, every other line. Yeah. In a way that is just flawless and brilliant. And then, but then no one's mad at her and she slips out. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the next scene is Bill Pullman proposing to her by dropping the engagement ring. In front of his whole family. In front of his whole family. He says, I'm, presumably, he told them. I'm going to propose to Lucy today, the day after she was going to marry my brother. Mm-hmm. Would you all like to come along and watch? And they go, sure, absolutely. We're yeah. all available. This is fine. <laughs> and then, then, they haven't gone on a real date. No. They haven't kissed, apart from under the mistletoe, like, which is creepy in its own way. Mm-hmm. And then, then they're married and that's the end of the movie. That's the end. Like, it's, it's mad. <laughs> It is mad. Like, I get it in, like, a sort of narrative satisfaction level. Yeah. But, like, do we just sort of accept... I don't think people really did that in the 90s. It's just, like, we kind of... At what point would that not have been mad? It is It is odd because there is this this uh, rom-com boom in the 90s that we're all still picking over the carcass of yeah. still and some of us are making livings off of. Sure. But um, it is so interesting how... Uh, obsessed with marriage they are as a natural conclusion point yes yes uh like my best friend's wedding like yeah. runaway bride like they're all it has to be marriage or nothing yeah you know? like there's there's no in between yeah there's no move in together or like even just like a really beautiful romantic statement that is quite yeah, like, easy to write you know because in that last scene she says to celeste uh yeah. well she says last day as though she's quit her job yeah and she implies sandra bullock has decided that she's had enough of being a a, a token booth person and is going to go off and Go to Florence. Also, Who the knows? the implication that she's not traveling the world because like she's not confident enough. Oh my god, like, she's not traveling the world because she works works a minimum wage job in yeah. a big city, and she's probably still paying off her fucking dad's Medical hospital bills. bills. Yeah. Oh my god, like but no, but like toughen up, Sandy. Like toughen what? up. Like what? You're a girl who works at the transit office and takes plans vacations she's never going to take. It's like ow. She can't <laughs> afford it, you monster. You monster. Who comes from this enormous family and like has not one job but two. And anyway, yeah. Um, but there's there's an implication that she's going to quit her job and leave mm-hmm. and you could just rewrite the last scene with she's leaving she's going to get on the train to leave Chicago and Bill Pullman comes and kisses her and that's the end of the movie and they go to Florence together or something yeah. beautiful they don't, they don't get married but they start dating and like it works yeah. still but yeah like you're right it, and, it, and it being enough that it's like none of us are mad at you all of us love you come on yeah. back for lunch you yeah, know? yeah 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 like, that's, <laughs> like that's the narrative satisfaction we want I don't want them to get married like, it, it's a weird obsession. What was happening in the culture? What was happening in the culture? <laughs> because I find, yeah, like, it's so weird that, that that's the, the thing you're going to die on the hill for. Like, I think it makes it worse. And I think people in the 90s knew it was stupid. Yeah. But we kind of don't question it. And now it's so far away. It's so stupid now yeah. that, like, we don't really mind. Maybe it's something to do with um this sort of... It's interesting because we, you know, 
we think about these movies in comparison to the movies that are being made now. We're like, oh, yeah. they really made good movies back then. Yeah. But that's, that burst of mid-90s rom-coms are, came after a quite a long dry spell for rom-coms. Mm. Like, there wasn't a lot going on for a while. There was stuff like Working Girl that was like, you know, very much an office. It was dealing with women in office stuff or whatever. Yeah. Like it had been a dry thing. And I read some articles today that was like lots of studio heads weighing in on the boom kind of thing and uh, they very much talking about it referencing sort of the 30s and the 40s of like these you know Hepburn and Tracy kind of like the the idea of like building a movie around the chemistry of two beautiful leads as opposed to building it around you know yes other stuff Um, and I guess those movies always end in marriage so therefore ergo 30 years ago they had to get married at the end of it yeah and now I guess we have to do that too sometimes those 60s movies there'd be a double wedding at the end oh my god yes very Shakespearean yeah I think but it is worth it for the last shot of the just married on the back of the L train though oh that is like that's iconic and we'd have to lose that if um, if they don't get married at the end Okay, so this is from the oral history, which is on the Washington Post, and it's um, Bill Pullman. And I think it's, it's important to, context- to contextualize that. It's like, this is Sandra Bullock's first big rom-com. It's his first big rom-com leading role. They've had this incredible time in Chicago. And he says, one of the most stunning moments was on our last day. All of a sudden, John, who's the director, took Sandra's hand and my hand, and he just said, run. And we ran away. We ran way out into a cornfield near near where we were shooting and put our heads really close together. He said, I just want you to know that no matter what response to the movie we get, this experience has been so filled with people, filled with joy. And I love you people. It's It sounds like the most lovely and fun movie. Because yeah. often you read stories about making a movie and they're like, it was hell. It took like 18 weeks. We had to do reshoots and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And this just sounds like they all had a really, really lovely time. Yeah. Um. I find it interesting that this this movie was a phenomenal success mm. and like has continued to be taken into the culture and like gently mocked as we've talked about but still yeah. really beloved. The writers never had another movie made. What? Yeah, which is bizarre. I think they like made a lot of money by like writing movies that never got made. Oh, but no. yeah, like it never it never happened. I mean, it happened for them. It literally happened in this movie. But yeah, they yeah. didn't then go on and have a hugely long career, I don't think. Um, which is really odd. Yeah. But also I think when I thought about that, I was like the script isn't really what makes this movie good. It's all the mm. other stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, if you think about their script, it was originally called mm-hmm. Coma Guy. <laughs> and it was supposed to be about Meg Ryan in a coma oh and a guy stalking guy. her. Like, you know, the magic is is not there. The magic mm. is in Sandra Bullock, like, wearing a jumper yeah. and, and pulling a present out of the enormous sleeve of her jumper. Oh. Um, and the, the chemistry of those two leads and the the family and like a lot of the lines I think were improvised. I don't drink anymore. I don't drink any less either. Um, and there's like a, a sort of onset magic of the production that has made this thing that is really wonderful and it's not really like, again, like the director's not like a famous rom-com director. Mm, he directed Cool Runnings. There you go. Another famous... Rom com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he um yeah, Cool Runnings and um Three Ninjas at High Noon. Interesting. Which um a I think filmography. Very and I think uh are are very much regarded as kind of classics of sort of breakfast cartoon Saturday morning yeah. movies. Like VHS you're with your brother in your pajamas kind of thing. Yes. But um very much big flops at the time and huge losses. Mm. And so yeah, th- this film has a certain sparkle and a certain magic, but I yeah. don't think it's attributable to any one part of it 
apart yeah. from Sandra Bullock, probably. Because there are some great dialogue scenes with those older actors, though. That's true. That is true. The thing with the, um, the it's just so, Gavin, when we were watching it, he was like, this is what it's like having dinner with your family, where it's like lots of people who are mostly talking to themselves. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. About, and like, it's like. These mashed potatoes are so creamy. <laughs> yeah. And like, people talking about like, you know, what, like my, Gavin calls my family IMDB O'Donoghue's. Because <laughs> it'll just be like my dad being like, uh, Dustin Hoffman, it was, you know, and it's like, Dustin Hoffman is five foot eight. And then like my brother being like, anyone see The Graduate? Da, da, da. And then everyone, someone like, oh, I saw The Graduate, but then actually it's like, and it's like. It's like playing telephone and it goes around the table. Yes, totally. There's that thing, they say that like the number of conversations you can have in a room is the number of people divided by five. Or something like that. Okay. And so, like, if you have, like, seven or eight, you kind of have, like, one and a half conversations going on at once. <laughs> um, and, the, yeah, they really, you're right, they really captured that sort of big, chaotic family dinner scene stuff yeah. in a way that, like, you mentioned the family stone. The family dinner scenes in the family stone are, are horrifying. They and are. they are so cringeworthy. They're like Jordan Peele movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're right. They are horror, they are horror movies at yeah. that moment. Um, and for some people, A Family Christmas is a horror movie. And for some yeah. people, it is a delightful comedy. But it really gets that. And I'd, I'd never quite seen it quite so perfectly rendered. That thing of like, you see big family dinners in movies and it's like, you know, it's like something like The Family Stone, which feels like a social horror yeah. drama. Or you see like, oh, we're all just so rambunctious or whatever. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, like, yeah. We're flicking mashed potatoes with the spoon in it. But like, what you don't see as much is like just pe- like ordinary people who are sort of dear, but a yes. bit boring and a bit repetitive and a bit this, because that's what people are like when they're with their family, you know? And there's one thing going on in lots of those other versions of this and there were like yeah. eight things going on in these scenes and they're all yeah. stupid they're all like st- Elsie made her eggnog and yeah. we have feelings about eggnog and they're like there's all this stuff going on and then on top of that Sandra Bullock and Bill Pullman like making eyes at each other across the table yeah. nodding at each other about how ridiculous it is yeah. and then yeah there's just like a big it make you're right it makes that mesh of different interpersonal relationships so well that makes it yeah. feel so cosy it makes you want to be a part of it it is it and makes you really want to go to that home for Christmas and it, it's it's this nice very artful thing as well of like showing the audience that like Sandy's character she's not like she's not in it for the propaganda of big family yes she's in it for the boring stuff and people being a bit weird and people being a bit inappropriate or repeating themselves or whatever she's like she just likes it yeah she just wants to hang out yeah she just like because she doesn't have anyone to she's I've never had anyone I can laugh with she's so sad Um, I I do wish there was at least one sentence of her being like all my friends are back in Milwaukee or something yeah that she has had friends before (laughs) you don't think she could make friends yeah or she can't make friends with Celeste that's true why doesn't she tell she goes Celeste invites her for New Year's why doesn't she tell Celeste that she's in this weird situation I don't know I don't know who knows Jerry knows we will never know he just doesn't retain any of the info (laughs) that's very true um I think that's that's it. I feel like we've covered an unexpectedly large amount of ground. It's been a real thrill a ride. Conversation about while he was sleeping. <laughs> the, no, this, I I um I definitely feel like I'm going to rewatch this movie again, mm. and I also feel like the multiplicity of the lenses that you can put on this movie yes. for such a real classic, something that they could have made in 1930, and it would have been a broadly the same. Mm. You know, it's very, you know. It's very traditional in its outlook on love and family and Christmas. And yet I feel like it has all these lenses that are so applicable because it's so well made. And when something is well made, yes. it's great art has great utility, you it, know? It's great to watch as an example of a rom-com. It's great to watch as a Christmas movie. It's mm. great to watch as 
someone who just likes watching Sandra Bullock. It's great as a family movie. It's yeah. great as a movie about loneliness. And I don't know whether it lucked into a lot of those things or whether mm. it is, as you say, just because it was so well-crafted yeah. and and made by people who really wanted to make a great movie and succeeded. And that's so rare. So rare. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Me too. Um, Sam Sedgman, do you want to plug some of your bits? Oh, please do. I mean... Uh, while you were sleeping with Sam Sedgman. While you were sleeping with Sam Sedgman. Uh, oh, my God. Um... So as mentioned, I've written several uh, novels for young readers. Uh, it's called the Adventures on Train series that I write with my very good friend M.G. Leonard. I've also written a non-fiction book for young readers, but really for anyone who likes trains, uh, mm. called Epic Adventures about amazing railway journeys around the world. Um, and depending on when you're listening to this episode, um, I have uh, a new series uh, of middle grade adventures uh, launching on the 1st of February, Ooh. 2024. Uh, it's called The Clockwork Conspiracy, and it's basically the Da Vinci Code for kids. Uh, it's about a kid who vanishes from the belfry of Big Ben on the night the clocks go back. And it's full of like secret codes and adventure and rooftop chases and all sorts of fun things. So if you like a children's book or if you have any 8 to 12 year olds in your life and you're looking for a Christmas present or a birthday mm. present, uh, please do um, think of me. <laughs> think of me. Please buy my books. That's what I'm saying. And hopefully um, when that comes out, there's a great sort of like clock themed rom-com you can come back. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> great clock themed rom-coms. Might be just the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> just, I would, I have a lot to say about the Da Vinci Code. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.